0: Morning friends. Good to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to First Kings chapter 18. Now some of you guys, I'm sorry, will have heard this already at the men's conference six months ago, uh, but that's not most of you. But uh First Kings beginning in chapter 18 verse 45, and stretching into uh, chapter 19, verse 18. I'm going to read all these verses to us. Be aware that we're dropping into the middle of the action. A humongous event in the history of Israel has just taken place in that Elijah has defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And so we insert ourselves Right in at this point, and verse 45 picks up the tail end of that action. So, beginning in chapter 18, verse 45 And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then, He was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life." for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of God, his inerrant and authoritative word. Let's pray for help now as we look into these verses. We do ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give us grace, grace to hear, grace to see your truth. Quicken us with your spirit, Lord, that he would open our eyes and give us understanding. Strengthen me to preach your word this morning, Heavenly Father, to make it clear for your precious bride that's seated in front of me. Above all, Lord, change our lives by your word. Transform us into the image of Jesus, your Son. We ask for your help now and pray in his name. Amen. The great disappointment was an event, an event that took place on October twenty second, 1844, Churches in the northeastern part of the United States had uh, grown rapidly in the early 1800s, fueled by a series of revival meetings that took place predominantly in the northeastern United States. But the new Christians produced by these revival meetings had a very limited understanding of what the Bible said, including passages like this one from Matthew Listen to this passage from Matthew twenty four thirty five. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And that day, uh, th- this verse clearly explains that no one but the Father knows the day of Christ's return. Christ in his human nature does not even know the day. Yet, in spite of Jesus' words that no one knew this day or hour of his return, there was nonetheless enthusiastic speculation on the exact day that Christ would return. And among those was this gentleman named William Miller. Uh, among these was this man as a new believer he had uh, devoured the prophecies of Daniel and he concluded in the year 1818 that Christ would return in 1843 or 1844 he later began to preach this this became a keynote of his messages and his listeners finding him earnest and eloquent and sincere, grew in number, he finally announced that Christ would return on October 22, 1844. Well, in this era there was a financial panic. Uh, that was in 1839. That contributed to the idea that the end of the world was coming. Uh, enthusiasm for Christ's return became so Uh, So great that prophetic charts were added alongside the stock market listings and current events in the newspapers. Newspapers, you remember those? (laughs) Miller's teachings swept through New England and large numbers embraced what he taught, which came to be known as Millerism. Well, as the morning of October 22nd, 1844 dawned, a sense of fear and foreboding, fell over that region of the United States. People gathered on mountaintops and churches. Here's an artist's rendering of uh, one group gathered for the return of the Lord. Normal activities ceased as everyone awaited the sudden tearing open of the skies and the end of the world and Christ returning on a cloud in great glory. But when the day passed uneventfully, many Christians grew very disillusioned. Unsaved people became cynical. And the following years saw a decline in the number of conversions. The period of revivals came to an abrupt end. And this event and this day uh, came to be known as the Great Disappointment. In ways that are far less dramatic, less public, And less well advertised, great disappointments continue to affect the lives of God's people. In fact, disappointment is so common among God's people that it seems to be one of the main tools God uses to produce spiritual growth in our lives. So when was yours? When was yours? Not, have you had a disappointment? That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, when was it? Perhaps your great disappointment came through your, your job and your employer. You were passed over for promotion again. Or somehow you fell short of achieving the success that you were hoping for in that job. Or perhaps it came when your boss called you into his office to tell you that your work wasn't up to it, and he was going to have to let you go. It could be through work. It could be you've experienced disappointment in your family, that um, you realize the hopes and dreams that you had for your son or daughter were not going to be realized, or when Your relationship with your spouse fell short of what you were expecting. Or when one of your children rejected what you had taught them growing up and turned away from Christ. Or when your hopes for having children were dashed by miscarriage after miscarriage. Whatever your great disappointment was, Disappointment seems to be a common tool God God uses to sanctify us, to make us holy, to grow us in grace, and to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus. How does God use disappointment in our lives? How does He use disappointment, sometimes great disappointment, to grow us in grace? I believe we'll see how God uses disappointment as we examine the great disappointment that took place in Elijah's life here in these uh, verses. Following his great victory on Mount Carmel in chapter 18 comes his great disappointment in chapter 19. I've divided our passage into four parts this morning, and the first part that we come to is the Lord's generous appeal. The Lord sends Elijah ahead of King Ahab, graciously offering Ahab an opportunity to turn from his sin. And we find this generous appeal in the last two verses of chapter 18. Let me read that again. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. We've obvi- Again, as I said, obviously dropping into the middle of something important after the important events of uh, chapter 18. Elijah had just defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel before a large audience of Israel. Mount Carmel is far up here to the northwest in Israel. Here's the Sea of Galilee. In Mark's gospel, we've been up on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. and uh, But here, in relation to the Sea of Galilee, is Mount Carmel, where four hundred prophets of Baal were defeated in an astounding display of the god, of god 's supremacy. He humiliated the prophets of Baal. If you 're not familiar with this story, you must read it this afternoon. Tell it to your children. It is a great event. Oh man, one of my favorites. Uh, And all this demonstrated that the Lord was the one true God. In fact, look at verse 36 with me. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, he is God. This is uh, how Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. And and then in a further display of God's great might, uh, Elijah prays for the Lord to end the drought that had come upon Israel. And it's the Lord who sends heavy rain and wind. Not Baal. Baal the god of thunder and wind and rain? Not Baal. The Lord sent it. And we see King Ahab departing from Mount Carmel before the rain can stop him. And he is on his way to the summer palace here in Jezreel. So he's traveling from here to the southeast. And the Lord enables Elijah to run ahead of Ahab's chariot, leading the way to Jezreel. And this is what we've read about in these last two verses of chapter 18. What's the significance of of these two verses? Why do I point them out in particular? Why does the Lord enable Elijah to run ahead of Ahab? Uh, Some have said it's 27 miles. It looks like a greater distance than that to me between Mount Carmel and Jezreel. You know, the Lord is involved here. There's obviously some reason for Elijah's marathon. And this one pastor offers this explanation. He says, I believe he's correct, by the way, the final image of the prophet racing on foot before the king, here's the prophet, here's the king following, symbolizes the restoration of the proper order in Israel. King, follows the prophet. This journey is a symbol of how the Lord wanted the king of Israel to rule his kingdom. He wanted the person in power to follow the instruction provided through the prophet, in this case Elijah. The Lord wanted the the word of the prophet to lead the way before the king, to show the king which way to go. The Lord didn't want the king operating in his own autocratic way, but he wanted him to submit to the direction that God gave him. And we see King Hezekiah do this in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Assyria threatens Judah's very existence. Uh, They are knocking at the gates, and Hezekiah sent Isaiah the prophet to, to, to obtain guidance from the Lord. Here in this scene, as it unfolds before King Ahab, the Lord is revealing to him the way things should be in Israel. Turn from your idols, submit to my word, and follow my prophet. It's it's God's very generous appeal to King Ahab to turn from his idolatry uh, and submit to his word, letting his prophet Elijah lead the way. So first we find this very generous appeal from the Lord to King Ahab, an opportunity to repent, to get things in the proper sequence. Put yourself behind my word, behind my prophet. Well, we go on in the second part of our passage we come to is Elijah's profound disappointment. He hears Jezebel's vow in this part and runs for his life bitterly disappointed that he was not able to eliminate Baal worship in Israel. Look at uh, verse 1 in chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel, King Ahab now has made it back to the summer palace. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O well, Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. I want to point out three things here about Elijah's disappointment. I mentioned Jezebel's vow, and we saw the vow she just made after Ahab recounts in detail the events of Mount Carmel, how Baal had been defeated, how the prophets of Baal had first been humiliated and then executed. Jezebel does not cave in. She does not cave in. She does not bow the knee and worship the Lord as those on Mount Carmel had done nor does Ahab submit himself to the word of God. On the contrary, as we read Jezebel's words, we see she is just as committed to Baal worship as she ever was and takes an oath in the name of Baal to kill Elijah within the next 24 hours. And she had a consistent record of doing that very thing. This is the vow she makes. And secondly, we see Elijah's flight. Uh, Verse three, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Uh, Some versions say, then he saw, instead of then he was afraid. And this This variation might be the correct reading. Then he saw, after Jezebel's vow, Elijah saw that Baal worship had not been defeated after all. With Jezebel's vow, Elijah saw that Ahab had not surrendered himself to the word of God. And their hearts were as hard as ever firmly entrenched in their unbelief. So Elijah runs for his life. This courageous prophet who boldly, just just a chapter before, boldly opposed the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel now runs as far away as he can get. He runs to Beersheba in the southern kingdom of Judah, 120 miles to the south. Uh, Here is Jezreel, uh, Mount Carmel again, where he defeated the prophets of Baal. Jezreel, Beersheba, I don't know if everybody can see this, all the way down here. He has gotten as far away from Jezebel as he can. A, A journey of about six days, Elijah's flight. And then we see his disappointment. Notice his disappointment. Leaving his servant in Beersheba, verse 4 tells us, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree. Fleeing further, Elijah finally sits down in the shade and and begs God to take his life. Others have suggested, and, and I agree with this, that it sounds like Elijah is abandoning his ministry. And what I want you to see is the reason he gives for abandoning his ministry at the end of verse 4. Look at what he says there. For I am no better than my fathers or my ancestors. In the end, he says, I haven't done any better than the prophets before me. They didn't succeed in ousting Baal worship from Israel? I haven't either. I'm no better than they are, Lord, so I quit. What I hope you see in Elijah here is the same kind of ambition that many of us have had. I mean, he did want a good thing, after all. Uh, He wanted the one true God to be honored as God. And he wanted the worship of false gods to end. He wanted to see it completely removed from Israel, not only from its leaders, uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, he wanted idolatry removed from, from the common people as well. These were good things. Many of the things you and I desire are good things. Godly children, jobs that provide, Healthy children. But this good goal, this hope that Elijah had, we might even use the word dream. This hope went unmet and this dream went unrealized and Elijah experienced profound disappointment. And so do you and I. Why does God allow this bitter disappointment in Elijah's life? Why does God allow you and me to experience disappointment in our circumstances? Of course, he could have multiple purposes and and likely does for allowing us to become disappointed some purposes of which we will never be aware of until eternity. But I think you and I can be certain of two purposes God has in allowing us to experience disappointment. And we'll see these in the final two parts of our passage. In the third part of our passage, moving on from his disappointment Uh, we come next to the Lord's gracious provision. And here we see the Lord miraculously provide for Elijah through the angel of the Lord. Notice verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. As before, the Lord miraculously provided for Elijah here. Just as the ravens brought him food at the brook Kareth uh, previously, the Lord again provides nourishment for Elijah here in the wilderness. Uh, Then it was through ravens, but here it's through the angel of the Lord which is something to pay attention to. When we read about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's often an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, of Christ before he took on human flesh at his birth. For example, in Judges chapter 6, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and allows Gideon to offer him a sacrifice. Uh, The angel of the Lord receives Gideon's worship And this demonstrates that the angel of the Lord was a divine being. Otherwise, angels forbid humans to worship them. And then this same thing takes place in Judges 13 with the parents of Samson. The angel of the Lord appears to them, instructing them on how to raise Samson. Samson's parents also offer a bird offering to the angel of the Lord, and and he receives it as worship again Reflecting that he is a divine being. And then here again in 1 Kings 19, the angel of the Lord appeared. The pre-incarnate son of God came to Elijah in the wilderness to attend to him in his brokenness and bitter disappointment. When it says the angel of the Lord, that's how we know it's a reference to Jesus Christ before he took on a human body I think this is one reason why God allows disappointment to drive us to Christ to drive us to depend completely on Christ I just love the way the scene unfolds there was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and lay down again The Lord Jesus, I don't mean to be flippant when I say this, knew how to put on a good barbecue. He did the same thing on the beach with the apostles. Do you remember that? They came ashore and there were some fish baked on the fire. And the intimacy that image conveys is astounding. Astounding. I know what these guys need. Nothing goes down good better than barbecued fish after a long day. Nothing goes better after a marathon like he's run than than some carbs, whatever, uh, cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And Eli- uh, uh, Christ comes to Elijah in his disappointment. And he also comes to us in our disappointment. As good as our hopes and dreams and goals are, sometimes they take on a life of their own and they start to occupy the place that Christ should occupy. And so Pastor Erwin Lutzer, uh, former pastor of Moody Memorial Church, Uh, wrote these words, have you ever thought that our disappointments are God's way of reminding us that there are idols in our lives that must be dealt with? The Lord allows these disappointments to remind us that some things have started to take the place that only Christ should occupy. To restore Jesus to the throne of our lives the epicenter of our lives by the way did you know that's where he's supposed to be that Christ Jesus means to be your everything do you hear that that's what it means to say Jesus is Lord Jesus is is the king. That's what it means to follow him, to make him the king and the ruler of your life. He's meant to occupy that central position, so often even with good things. Uh, good things tend to nudge Christ off the throne. But God's word tells us, Paul wrote in Colossians 1.17, that in everything he might be preeminent That he might take first place. Nothing should usurp the spot that Christ has, and how often things, good things, do. I like the way Charles Spurgeon said it. You've seen this quote on Facebook a million times, perhaps. He said, I've learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. I've learned to welcome those disappointments that drive me to Christ. So in this third part, we see the Lord come to Elijah, the pre-incarnate Christ, and provide uh, for his needs. Uh, He miraculously provides uh, for Elijah in his disappointment. And in our lives, the Lord often allows disappointment to drive us to the rock of ages, Christ our Lord. Finally, in the fourth part of our passage, we see the Lord's mysterious ways. After Elijah complains that Baal worship has not been defeated, the Lord reveals that his ways are sometimes mysterious, but that he still controls events. I want to mention four things about his mysterious ways. Again, we see disappointment. Um, The first uh, uh, thing we see is disappointment. At Horeb, uh, Mount Horeb, Elijah bitterly complains to the Lord. Uh, Notice verse 8 and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. We find Elijah traveling another 250 miles to the south, a journey of about 14 days through a uh, very rough train, most of it. Okay, here is where we were at at Beersheba uh, in the last uh setting he was a little he left his servant there and went a little ways into the into the wilderness, but now he is i'm not sure if you can see this he is down here at Mount Sinai uh also known as Mount Horeb. this is where Moses received the ten commandments. It says here that he arrives at Mount Horeb into a cave more literally it says the cave the cave some believe this is the very cave where the lord hid moses as he passed before him and it's here at the cave that the lord questions him what are you doing here elijah which he replies, I've served you exclusively and enthusiastically, but Baal worship has not been eliminated. There's no reason for me to go on. He states his disappointment. But then the next thing we see here is, uh, the, is different ways. The Lord reveals to Elijah that he, he deals with people in different ways. His ways cannot always be detected. Verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, or as the ESV footnote says, A thin silence. The wind and the fire and the earthquake remind us how the Lord revealed himself to Israel on this very spot in the book of Exodus. That is how the Lord revealed himself on Mount Sinai. But on this occasion, with Elijah, the Lord doesn't appear in the wind and the fire and the earthquake. This time, the Lord answers Elijah in a a very unexpected way through the sound of a a low whisper, a thin sound, a subdued sound, a thin silence. The Lord seems to be challenging uh, Elijah's interpretation of events And, and addressing his disappointment. The Lord seems to be telling Elijah that he doesn't always work in ways that are visible and dramatic. And sometimes he works in ways that even his servants can't detect. He works through a thin silence. He works in ways that often we don't expect, but regardless of how he works, he is still at work. And so he reveals to Elijah these different ways Then we see, thirdly, disappointments. Again, this time seems to be a little more firm because he states it word for word. He has rehearsed this. And he has this belief in his head that this is how it is. It's really unbelief. And he bitterly complains again. Verse 13 says, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. But the second time, he expresses his bitter disappointment that he failed to purge Baal worship from Israel. But the way he repeats it, it has become his mantra. I mean, he's had all this time to think about it, traveling down to, to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And he rehearses his disappointment again. And to this, the Lord replies fourthly, with direction he gives elijah direction revealing to him that he still controls events in israel he is still sovereign look at verse 15 and the lord said to him go return on your way to the wilderness of damascus and when you arrive you shall anoint Haziel to be the king over syria And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. It's unusual for a prophet from Israel to anoint the king of another country. But through this command to anoint Hazael over Syrah, the Lord is declaring to, to Elisha that he is sovereign, he rules even over this non-Israelite country, and that he would use this foreign king to bring judgment on the house of Ahab. And then the next thing, person he's he's called to anoint through through this command to anoint jehu the lord declared to elijah that in spite of how things looked he's still sovereign over the northern kingdom of israel that had departed from the lord and the lord would use jehu to launch a complete purge of ahab's house and then this command to anoint elisha the lord is declaring to elijah his his sovereignty, his rulership over all things, he would use Elisha to complete the purge of Baal worship that Elijah had begun. The Lord gives him this direction, revealing that he still controls events. It's not thunder and lightning, Elijah. It's not earthquake and storm It's more behind the scenes. I'm doing all these things behind the scenes, but I am doing it. So finally, we see, fourthly, the Lord's mysterious ways. After Elijah complains that Baal worship hasn't been defeated, he reveals to Elijah that his ways are mysterious and that he still controls events in Israel. This is the second reason I think God allows disappointment in our lives, to show us that he works in ways that we don't expect. Isn't our cry when we experience disappointment, God, why aren't you working? Well, he is working. We just can't detect it. You just can't see it. If you want to see the ultimate example of this, read the book of Esther, where God is behind the scenes the whole time. His name is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. And as he is at work in Esther, he is at work in ways that we don't expect and in ways that we can't detect. But he is working. So then how does God use disappointment in our lives? How does he use not just disappointment, sometimes great disappointment to sanctify us, to grow us in grace, to conform us to the image of Son, of his Son. We've seen how he uses disappointment as we examine Elijah's great disappointment. There are four parts. First, we saw the Lord's generous appeal to King Ahab to get things in the right order. Then we saw Elijah's profound disappointment at uh, Jezebel's threat. We saw the Lord's gracious provision, thirdly. And in this particular part, we saw how the Lord uses disappointment to throw us upon the rock of Christ. And then lastly, uh, we saw the Lord's mysterious ways. And here we saw the Lord uses disappointment to show us that he works in ways we don't expect. So a woman named Edith Lillian Young was trying to describe this, and she wrote this uh, piece uh, called Disappointment, His Appointment. And it was just too long to put on slides, and I didn't feel like doing all that. Forgive me. So uh, this is very good. It's been made into a song at least once, Again, Edith Lillian Young is the author, and it's called Disappointment, His Appointment. Disappointment, His Appointment. Change one letter, then I see that the thwarting of my purpose is God's better choice for me. His appointment must be blessing, though it may come in disguise for the, for the end from the beginning open to his wisdom lies. Disappointment, his appointment. Whose? The Lord who loves me best, understands and knows me fully, who my faith and love would test. For like loving earthly parent, he rejoices when he knows that his child accepts unquestioned all that from his wisdom flows. Disappointment, his appointment. No good thing will he withhold. From denials oft we gather, treasures of his love untold. Well he knows each broken purpose leads to fuller, deeper trust. And the end of all his dealings proves our God is wise and just. Disappointment, his appointment. Lord, I take it then as such like the clay in hands of potter, yielding wholly to thy touch. All my life's plan in thy molding, not one single choice be mine. Let me answer unrepining, Father, not my will, but thine. Our disappointments are in fact his appointments. Let me pray as we conclude. Heavenly Father, we know that you are infinitely wise. We can't even fathom how profoundly wise you are. Father, we know that you are loving and good. That our good and your glory are always what you're aiming for in our lives. Like the wise parent, you know what will hurt us. And these things you attempt to remove or block or warn us of. Father, we don't understand how you work. Of course, uh, this is obvious. We're not God. Only you, only you are God. We're grateful for Jesus, whom you've given to us to pay for our sin on the cross but who also draws near to us in our disappointment. Help us, Father, to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of Christ. Do this in us by your good spirit. Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.